and welcome to this year's Word Podcast. I'm your host, Courtney Symes. I'm an author, entrepreneur, mum and wife. A couple of years ago, I realised the power of theming my year with a single word when I selected the word love and did everything I could to embody this word into all facets of my life. The positive impact this word had on my life was so profound that I wrote a book about my experience called A Year of Love, Finding Peace One Day at a Time. Since then, I continue to follow my Word of the Year theme and also select a Word of the Month, which I explore further in this podcast series. In each episode, I will dive deeper into the significance of my monthly word, which will hopefully inspire and motivate you to use more positive words too, and ultimately, change your life, one day at a time. I also share quotes and other sparks of inspiration related to my monthly word on my blog and Facebook page. Check out the links for these in the show notes. Without further ado, let's dive in to today's episode. I often find it comforting to consider that many of the problems I encounter in life are not new or unique. In fact, there is a good chance many people have experienced what I'm experiencing before. Whilst our journey through life is unique, our thoughts, feelings and reactions are what make us human. This is the beauty of philosophy, which is the study of the truths or principles underlying all knowledge and being. Throughout time, philosophers have observed and documented common themes, questions and challenges faced by the human race, as well as our response to these. I believe philosophy and wisdom are closely entwined. So, this month, as I focus on the theme of wisdom in my podcast episodes, I thought it would be fitting to include a conversation around philosophy. In this episode, I'm joined by Justin McSweeney, founder of Illumin Life and host of the IdeaCast interview series. Illumin Life is an organisation established to assist people in mastering healthy, transformative processes. Illumin Life works with subscribers to recognise dysfunctional patterns in their daily life. This self-inquiry will assist the subscriber to recognise beliefs and narratives that are concomitant with attachment and resistance. Illumin Life work with the members to gently recognise those patterns of conscious and in as much as possible unconscious thought and behaviour and to then commit to exercises that assist with release or modify the patterns to then be able to interact with life in a more spontaneous, productive manner. When a person becomes aware of their resistance to growth by way of rigid belief, they can use techniques and exercises with Illumin Life to create change in their lives. Illumin Life focuses on supporting mastery through the process of application of discipline and effort. When a subscriber joins the Illumin Life program, they enter into a partnership of comprehensive support and connection. They believe that compassion and comprehensive connection creates an environment for the Illumin Life member to flourish and grow into a greater expression or version of themselves. Justin also has an infectious enthusiasm for philosophy, which is the focus of our conversation today. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. 
Welcome, Justin. Let's dive straight in. My first question to you is, this year's Word Podcast focuses on different words each month. So we'll begin with a few word-related questions. Can you start by telling me what impact words have had on your life? Um, What are your favorite words? Oh, my goodness. That's a... (laughs) It's a tough question to answer because I do love words so much that I think I go in rotation with words that I I enjoy. So words will show up for me either by my searching for something else or uh, I'll go look for a word that I heard somewhere. And so currently I'm entertaining um, words that are portmanteaus or neologisms, uh, if I'm saying that right. And so they're words that are coined uh, from scratch, basically, or they, they're not in the lexicon uh, per se. And so um, I, I prefer those kind of words right now, I guess, to, mm. to answer your question. Yeah, yeah. 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 And so awesome. as, as ex- I can give some examples, if you wish, mm. um, things that are bouncing around in my head these days. Mm. Uh, one that I found, uh, there's a woman whom I follow on, uh, on YouTube occasionally, and her name is Nora Bateson. And her father was Gregory Bateson. He's a very famous anthropologist. He was known for coining uh, neologisms or or portmanteau. And so she came up with one, uh, I think about two years ago, and it's called aphanopoesis. And so it's a merger of two basic Greek root words. And uh, with apologies to Nora, I will say that it is um, kind of a, a coalescence of uh maybe an actualization of an idea or an event or an action by an agent um that is somewhat seemingly mysterious in its coalescence it's it's a um uh, an event or an act or a phenomena that you may not necessarily be aware of the origin of that act and so it almost speaks to an uh, an idea that when like you and I are having a conversation right now, we're foregrounding and backgrounding a lot of ideas, thoughts, and information. A lot of that has a history. There's a, you know, a linearity uh, to everything that's brought us up to this conversation. And and so what she's uh, suggesting in this is that there are things that we are not aware of that are not necessarily uh, forefront on the radar for ourselves, the awareness radar, the perception radar uh, to to milk that, um, that allow us to have novel ideas and allow us to have creative insights and thoughts. And mm. so it speaks almost to like a subliminal process or an unconscious process, but it's more just an acknowledgement of the process itself. So when we say subconscious, it's kind of vague and abstract or again, something subliminal. But this this refers more to um, all the prior events that that lead to something novel or unique occurring either from a single person or from a, a, a collaboration. So, so I thought that was a neat word. It's, it mm. just speaks to more dynamic uh, means of creativity and imagination and so forth. So anyway, I love it. Love it. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you have any other favorite words? Like how, and how would you sort of use words in your life at the moment? Like, do you, do you use affirmations or mantras or, you know, have a person, personal mission statement that you live by per se? Uh, so as far as mantras, I, I would say that when I find a word or discover a word, I'll get to know it. I'll, mm-hmm. I'll look up the etymology of the word. I want to know its history, uh, if it's a you know, word that intrigues me. And then I I also like the evolution of words. And so years ago, I bought an unabridged Oxford dictionary from 1962. And 
I lost it to storm damage. It got moldy. But um, in the time that I had it, I would just go through and just find new words and just, you know, go on adventures and odysseys with this thing and, and you know, use it also to look up words that I had to look up. But uh, I would of, often just drift off and and uh, and find things anyway. Uh, so what was going on in 1962 uh, has you know, language changes and evolves. So I'll, mm. the one thing that stands out to me is a word called radamanthine with R-H-A-D, radamanthine. And it's uh, based on a mythological character. He's kind of a underworld um, not, he's like a, somewhere between a litigator, you know, someone who adjudicates and also, uh, an inquisitor He's kind of like in the Hebrew Bible that the, you know, that their devil would be in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, but Radamanthine in 1962 meant to be unwaveringly just. Mm. And now in the, in the 2020s, if you look up Radamanthine, I think typically you'll see that the definition is that it is stern and unyielding and, uh, and someone who judges which is more true to what they were inferring when they brought up, when they coined that phrase, Radamanthine. And so, uh, but I like the sort of unwaveringly just, I, that's what mm -hmm. I had always locked into that word. So that's just one example. Uh, I don't have very many others, but I mean, yeah, that's, that's great. Funny, yeah. Funny how words will, uh, will so not, not mutate, but I think each generation maybe has the, and this is how language should, should work. Evolve, is that Yeah. They, Right. We perspectively, we can uh, re uh, reform the words or mm. we can recondition or reperspectively adjust <laughs> mm. whatever, however that works out. So, yeah, yeah, I'm all I'm all for it uh, as long as it's done in good in good faith that it, it, yeah. it advances the idea of the word. So in, in the case of Radamanthine, I think it did. It just kind of surprised me because I had the word from years ago and then I looked it up a couple of years ago and I was like, really? It's changed. And yeah. It's I guess that's why they update the dictionary so regularly, isn't it? Because there's always words coming into culture that, you know, might come from other languages or slang or, you know, quite mm -hmm. often it's, you know, youth culture that drives new words that are added to our language. But um, it's it's fascinating that it does, you know, evolve in in its own little way, you know, as we're evolving, language evolves too. Which, But it's also important, I think, to not lose the history of language that has been, especially with words like that, where they, you know, it, it's interesting to see where they've come from and where they go to over time. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's mm -hmm. fascinating, isn't it? Indeed, absolutely. So this episode is is focused on wisdom. So I'm going to jump into some questions now um, related to the wisdom theme of this episode. Um, and my question for you next is uh, you mentioned that you identify as a, a philosophical hobbyist, which I love. Um, can you share what first sparked your interest in philosophy and and why you think it's important? Okay, so I'll I'll reverse the order of my answer to your yeah. questions. And so to set the theme for the audience, the again, when we look at the etymology of philosophy, it is philosophia or is the love of wisdom. Yeah. And so I would be happy to get into a debate or a dialectic with someone who are who can argue against the love of wisdom. And, and, and I'm no intellectual, I'm no academic, I'm just an average person, but I would, I would defend this idea that we should have a love for wisdom. I think in the in the modern era where where we are right now, uh, in modern Western society, uh, we focus heavily on intelligence. We focus heavily on propositional intelligence. That is to say, A plus B equals C. And mm -hmm. I dare you to challenge me on this. You know, and it's this this kind of propositional thinking is is general intelligence based. It is it is to be very um, 
empirical, it is to be very rigid, et cetera. And so wisdom is like the brakes and the steering on, like if intelligence was just raw, straight ahead horsepower, brakes and steering come in as wisdom to help uh, mediate that high level of intelligence. And so if we can get those elements or phenomena into synthesis with each other, then we are practicing intelligence in a, a, a positive way, a positive affect way, some, something that is in good faith uh, for the community at large, for society, for the culture. And mm -hmm. so that's, that's kind of a long-winded answer, but I would say it is absolutely critical and important. And there are actually academics in the world um, who are kind of spokespeople of science who say, well, we can, we can dispose of philosophy now. We have science, we have uh, the empirical uh, evidence, we have data. You know, and this speaks to this uh, kind of self-deception that um, we don't want to rely just on that empiricism alone. And and the fact that some of these folks and they call it scientism, it is a religion of science, mm -hmm. more or less. And that's a very derogative way of saying it. But mm -hmm. I, I, I'm being somewhat polemic and provocative to say that when somebody speaks to that, they're almost speaking out of ignorance because when someone does science, it's a practice mm -hmm. uh, and it's it's something that you enter into and then you come back from. And every every person can do a little bit of science. They can enter into the practice. So it is, uh, you know, measuring and quantifying the patterns and patterns and regularities of nature, whatever it is. And, and then you come back out of it and then you have to do philosophy both before and after doing science. You have to ask questions before you go into the practice of science. And then when you come out of your practice of science, you have to talk about the results and the data that you got. So again, anybody that ever says that, um, I, would, I would add a caveat or an asterisk to the end of that to say that we must also practice wisdom and we must also practice um, that discipline to know what we're dealing with, know what we're handling here. So anyway. I was kind of yeah. a rant. No, no, but. that was that was great because essentially science is is the tool, but you know philosophy and and the wisdom is the um, the the conclusion or what the what you draw from that data. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the way that you apply it or decide what it means. And I think that's yes. they're, they're two different things in many ways. Yes, um, I agree. In terms of um, people that inspire you, what philosophers and philosophical theories interest you the most? What what do you enjoy reading and learning about? Okay, and this I can answer uh, another part of the question you asked before, and answer this question, and yeah. hopefully in one breath without being uh, belaboring it too much. I had a brain injury years ago, and part of my uh, my own rehabilitation for this injury was to think about what I could do to exercise my brain. And they talk mm -hmm. about neuroplasticity and, you know, getting ourselves uh, jogging that, that mind muscle. Uh, and so I, I loved horticulture and botany uh, for years, for over 30 years. And I had to retrain my mind for that. I had to go familiarize myself with uh, the taxonomy of, of all the plants that I have plus plants that I have an interest in. So, so that was my first step. And then um, somehow I stumbled into philosophy, uh, probably by way of YouTube and probably by way of just um, being curious about something that led to another that led to another thing. And um, I managed to rehabilitate myself, I believe, to a degree uh, with just continuously uh, trying to understand what these people were talking yeah. about. It's very <laughs> mind numbing. Yeah, absolutely. It's very off-putting at first. Uh, it's not, it's, it's not everybody's cup of tea. It is, it's, it's on the surface. It seems very, um, 
their word would be abstruse you know it'd be very challenging and, and obnoxious and but i would say don't don't give up on the first uh your first impact with it go go and and find so i'll i'll, I'll reapproach this it, there are so many branches of philosophy and one yeah. of them is aesthetics and the arts it is the understanding of what the arts means what the relationship of humanity is with the arts so that's a, a good place to uh, segue and to, to entree and and start with that and then you can move into um, philosophy of ethics. So if you're concerned about maybe the state of affairs in society, you could dive into the uh, philosophy of ethics and you know look to good faith people who are trying to sense make in that regard. And then the probably and, and where I landed and where I ended up was a little bit more into philosophy of mind and consciousness and things like that. I'd always been very curious about, um, somewhere in that liminal space between spirituality and um, the nature of humanity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and when I speak to spirituality, again, I go to maybe to the etymo- etymological uh, value of the word, which is to say the the um, more abstract aspects of of mindedness and and humanity's um, expression of itself. So so I and of course, spirituality can take on many other meanings. Um, and I, I, you know, honor and respect all of that. But this is more of a very spirit light for me. So, um, <laughs> So that's where I landed. And so I fell into people who were talking um, in the intersections of cognitive science, psychology, philosophy of mind and ontology. And you had uh, we had talked about that in our premium. So I can address that in a little bit if you want. But mm. it is these it is these ideas of uh, so the questions and the inquiries into that would be uh, what is consciousness? What is mindedness? What is intelligence? What is our relationship with um, what we would call the outside world. Is there an objective outside world or is there a transjective relationship in the intersubjectivity of, of, of how we, the phenomenology, so I'll bang all these words out, the, the, mm-hmm. of how we experience life, of how we interact with what we call the world at large or the world in front of us, or I'm having a conversation with you. How am I, what's going on here when you and I are talking? So mm-hmm. all those things just really got m- my little tail wagging and I was like, oh, this is really cool. And and here I here I am a few years later, uh, still just bewildered and, and continuously trying to wick up, uh, everything I can. Um, and, and one wonderful irony that I, I find when I dig into philosophy is the, the more I learn, the more I realize how little I know or how, oh. how overwhelming and, and, and I just, you know, it's, 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 it's absurd. That's basically all I can say is there's so much to try to digest that um, is so humbling and, and uh, again, etymology, humiliating, because humiliating means grounding. It Mm -hmm. just really grounds you into your um, sense of uh, your place in the universe or your place in the world. It's just, um, so I'll leave it there and hand it back to you. But yeah, that's, that's what it's left me with the impression that it's left me with. So again, it was a recovery tool and then it just opened up these doors of awe and wonder to me. And, and I'm deeply humbled by it because I don't know anything. And I, and, and, I could speak to things like uh, skepticism and agnosticism and and that, but I'll I'll stop for a moment and see if you where you want to go. Yeah, no, that that is fantastic. I a couple of things there that I love. Firstly, um, that you say that you're able to access a lot of stuff on YouTube. I think that's a really good point because information now is is so freely available. And whilst everything on 
on the internet, you know, it needs to be taken with a grain of salt mm. sometimes. Often it's a very good place to start if you're, you know, curious about something or, you know, and you can just start by Googling, you know, one of the big questions that you have. And I think the other good point that you made was that you were curious, you know, you were just at a point where you had some questions and you were interested to see what others had to say around that. So within that, I think that's a, a really good starting point. And then obviously mm. you'll come across things that, you know, may seem um, as you said, it was a little sort of overwhelming when you started. It, it can seem a little um, dense to kind of get into, but I guess there will be elements that resonate with you and then you can follow those paths to to seek, you know, books that people have written or dig deeper in things that really interest you. So, yeah, that's a really good starting point. And I suppose as well where you say you had the brain injury as well, um, it's quite often when we're faced with challenges or trauma like that, we do start to question things and, and it's good to get that understanding understanding of where everything fits and why things happen in life. And yeah, it, it does lead you on that path of curiosity. No, that's fabulous. Yeah, I, um, so I, my, I, I, sorry, go. Oh, I was just going to say, thank you for bringing that up. I neglected to say that, that, that there was an existential crisis involved with yeah. that brain injury. And so you pointed out something absolutely um, to the audience that, you know, it's, uh, it's very therapeutic to seek that kind of rehabilitation that, um, that has twofold benefits. So, yeah. so I just want to acknowledge that. Thank you. Just um, steering back on onto the words element of that, um, what do you think is the importance of, of words in philosophy um, with the, the research and things that you've seen, um, for example, like symbols or specific mm -hmm. words that have been used to describe concepts or feelings or states of being? Um, what would you what would you speak to that? I'll, I'll start at a very, so this is just me speaking uh, in, in what I've observed. And um, you, you, hit, you hit the nail on the head with, with uh, symbols, signifiers and signified uh, that there's, a, there's a, a field of study called semiotics, which is the study of symbols and symbolism. And when we think about language and we think about um, alphabets and characters that we use, everything is symbolic. Everything is either in spoken word, it is, it is metaphor. In the visual or in braille, it is that which is a signifier or that which is signified. And the signified is the reception of the signifier. And um, so everything boils down to metaphor, symbol and meaning in that sense, or symbolic meaning in that sense, or an abstracted meaning uh, from metaphor. And also speaking to um, just the just the underlying character, the characters and the shapes and the forms that make sense to us. And we learn those as children, mm. uh, as we're onboarding information. And it's, it's this, so I'll go off on a weird tangent. This speaks to an extended mind. It speaks to each generation passing intelligence and, and, and hopefully wisdom onto another generation. So, so, so the mind is essentially not quite a tabla rasa. It's not quite a blank slate, but it is also uh, capable of onboarding so much. And that's again, where we take the wisdom of the elders and those who came before us and, and all that symbolism and metaphor and, and semiotics, et cetera. Uh, I just find such value in, in trying to see that longer uh, view of it um, that, you know, there is a history behind us and, and everything that we do now was brought to us by someone else, mm. whether it's deep history or whether it's people coming up with novel and creative ideas. So, uh, so to, get to wrap that all up, yeah, everything we do is based on metaphor. It is based, we can't define one word without using other words. We're mm. locked into this weird uh, play of words and we'll never escape it. And that's kind of humbling in its own right too. 
and it's and we should be proud of ourselves. Um, you know, there are people who argue in linguistics and uh, the idea of of where language evolved and and how much of it is inherent. You know, I re I referenced the blank slate. It's it, some people theorize that that's just so many uh, generations of it uh, being woven into us that it's sort of part of our not quite our DNA, but it's part of our how we're how we're built. Is that we uh, we are predisposed to learn language very quickly and it shows up you know children children do that and the, and the interesting thing is in in our deep deep history is that um language is born of something they call an exaptive process like our tongues evolved to taste whether something's poisonous or whether it's good mm. or you know to sense things and then as we were coming up uh evolution in the evolution uh tree or scale uh that you know that tongue became a way of 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 making noises and at first they were very primitive but now we here we are uh, making these rather sophisticated intonations and sounds and things like that so, so that's another thing to think about is that it was not it just sort of happened uh outside of a normal evolutionary path that we develop language and it was for, because we were social animals and we would say hey mm. fruit over there or danger over here you know whatever or keep up you know whatever it was all those different very basic things that as we were becoming more social and more uh, transient that we needed those kind of things to to do what we do so yeah, again, another, yeah. another tangent sorry but. no not at all no that's that's wonderful because I suppose being conscious beings um you know and social beings we obviously for survival we need to find communication is very important and you know whilst we could communicate through gestures or other ways it's just another way that we've developed our ability to communicate and it's fascinating how sophisticated it has become over time you know from um as you say sort of primitive noises to and gestures to like how many different thousands of different languages in the world have we, you know, evolved into now to communicate and um, yeah. And still it continues. It's incredible. Going back um, into the philosophy side of things. Um, why do you think other people should be interested in philosophy? What elements of philosophy do you believe should be applied to our current society um, to improve mindset and our quality of life? I think an idea that might resonate with the broadest uh, audience or, or have uh, would land well with uh, with a broad audience is the idea that, as I said, uh, when we first started talking about uh, philosophy, it is a love of wisdom. And so we have to each understand what wisdom or think about what wisdom means to us and what value being wise uh, might bring to our lives and to our relationships. Mm -hmm. And that would be my my um my call to action or my call to uh think about what it could mean for you in your life is when we think about ethics and when we think about uh the the social ecosystem the commons the um culture at large and i can only speak to sort of western culture uh is that in our daily interaction with each other are we showing up in good faith are we exercising an ethical prudence? Are we um, acting uh, for the good in a balance or, or a healthy tension between ourselves and the other, even the other that we may not be in our um, immediate family group or our friend group or, or whatever cultural system we might find ourselves in? So I would say that for the sake of human flourishing and thriving, yeah. that these 
basic foundational ideas. You don't even need to take a deep dive into philosophy. You can do this on your own and just think to yourself, how can I show up as the best possible expression of myself or the best possible person that I can be in a social social situation or a family situation? How can I show up for the other? And also have self-interests. It's not about asceticism or or denying yourself anything. It is it is understanding relationality. It is understanding that what you do impacts another person. And and now I have to put an asterisk on that, that there we all deal with psychological conditions and personality types and and uh, traumas from the past and, and, and all these different things that show up for us. Mm. That has to be factored in as well. So it's very complex. It's not as simple as just Justin says this and it's prescribed to you and you do that. And obviously, most people know that. And, and, and any of the any of the uh, sort of self-improvement guru types, you know, I mean, they they talk really uh, good, um, charismatic, uh, rhetorician style uh, delivery of, of great ideas. But, you know, we do have to account for what is what's going on with us psychologically, what's going on with us emotionally. So I say all of that is a caveat that, mm. you know, you show up in good faith. It's going to take some effort if we've been traumatized or if we're upset, you know, if we're holding back something and we may not even be aware of it. It's like the Nora Bateson word. We don't know all of the confluence of all the things that led to this one moment where you're going to say or do something. There's so much background there. There's so much before you foreground another move, another step, you know, another frame into your behavioral uh, future. So uh, I, I'll stop there. But I think, yeah, that might be yeah. one good um, motivational um lens that we can look at it through is to say, you know, if, if we are to be a global community, we are uh, in the, for better or worse, we're in the information age, we have uh, a lot of access to each other. Uh, we've got a lot of people getting together online and doing things. And we're just about we're on the cusp of uh, machine learning where that's going to be a whole nother dynamic. Oh, yeah. Right. So so we need to think about this ethical grounding. And that's, again, where philosophy can come in and mm. show us the wisdom and show us the prudence. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot of prudent thinking in philosophy because as obnoxious as philosophers can be arguing and back and forth and being in dialectic, any good faith philosopher is just trying to move the idea forward. They're not mm. trying to beat the other philosopher in an art. It's not about winning. It's not you know any competition in that sense. It's to further the idea. So if we're talking about uh, what are ethics, then if two people are going at it, they're trying to move the ethics forward and say, how do we best express that? Mm. So, and that's good faith. There's people who do argue that are not arguing in good faith. They have an agenda. They have a dogma oh, or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And so a good practitioner um, there's a term called epoke. They suspend judgment and they do, they argue for the betterment of the idea rather than their personal uh, narcissistic, uh, you know, tendencies or whatever. So. Yeah, that's brilliant. I love how you talk about the variables within that because, um, you know, whilst we can sort of look at philosophy as the, the ideal, you know, if you look at something like, um, you know, the Ten Commandments in the Bible or even just, you know, a basic thing of be kind to people, that's all well and good until someone does something that upsets you or, you know, with the best of intention, you treat someone kindly and you don't get a kind reaction in response from them. You know, it's it's such a variable thing from all parties, really. But I suppose it just prevents that. It just proposes that sort of 
um, gold standard, doesn't it? It's like if everything mm-hmm. were to work well, this is how we would act and behave. But, you know, yeah. within that there will always be variables. So I love that you touch on that. It is it is an ideal rather than, um, you know, the reality often. But I think if we're all sort of working to that common goal, it just mm-hmm. makes our society and our communities work better, doesn't it? Yes. Yes, I agree. Now, now my next question is you you talk about you're interested in um, ontology. I am not very familiar with what that is. So I was hoping that you might be able to explain that in a bit more detail for me. Sure. I, ontology is is a um, subspecies within philosophy. And I use species as, again, a metaphor. Uh, it is It is something that is talked about. And there are probably big O ontologies, and then there are smaller ontologies. And ontology, basically, a, a, a real brief way to explain it is beingness. It is understanding okay. what is being. And so we could talk about ontology in the sense of if we took flour, eggs, and uh, a little milk or water and whipped it up and we got a batter and then next thing you know you've got a cake and and, and a little baking powder i forgot about that and and you just suddenly have a cake well let's so if somebody presented a cake then you and and you're a philosopher you would say well what is the ontology of this cake what is the ontological uh back history of the cake and so then the constituency of the cake is then um discovered through perhaps finding the recipe. So this is a very kind of yeah, bizarre Yeah, no, I, I like it. This is a great analogy. That makes sense. <laughs> right, right. So then, yeah. the, so then the philosopher would be like, oh my gosh, I understand now. A cake is constituted mm. of flour and eggs. And again, a silly example, but it just no, speaks to how do we discover what a cake is? And yeah. cake is the base constituencies. And so when we talk about more um, probably meaningful and significant ontologies, it could go as deep as what are we? Yeah. What are we? What are we made yeah. of? What is the universe? Yeah. So yeah. that's the really deep big O ontology. There again, there are smaller scale ontologies. So maybe the ontology of um a cultural practice. Like yeah. uh, what do we what do we understand about the um procedural or ritual uh elements of a practice? And 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 it's not quite an ontology, but that, that might speak to a lesser ontology, just to understand the base constituency of something that makes it whole. It is what makes it what it is. Uh, yeah. so, so maybe that there's probably other ways to define it. So but I'll offer that. I love that. That makes sense to me. It's all the elements basically, isn't it? That's um that I, it go I together. So. Yeah, yeah. I like the cake analogy. So in terms of um anyone that's new to philosophy, um, we touched on you started sort of looking at YouTube videos and things, but where else would you recommend they start? What books or authorities or websites would you recommend, if any? Mm, I would have to say that to, uh, so YouTube is a goldmine yeah. for for these um, types of inquiries. And uh so what I'll do is I'll do a shameless plug and I, I've, I'm comfortable doing it because I don't derive yeah. any revenue from my my interview channel. And I on my channels, it's the subscriptions that I have. It's it's publicly available. I have a ton of um, different channels that deal with philosophy. And yeah. so if somebody's really curious, go to that and it'll be if you have the uh, information that they can find that. Uh, uh, in my program, I won't mention it here now, but it'll it'll be down. Yeah, no, um, well, I'll put all it... of the links in the show notes. Okay, but yeah, that's okay. brilliant, and it's great that you've um, curated things that you're interested in. I think that's a really nice. It's sort of like right. your your playlist of you know favorites, and yeah. I like that. That's great. Yeah, and some of them are simple, as it's like the Harvard Philosophy Department or mm. um, 
uh, UC, the University of California has different branches and different things. And so some of the bigger schools will have their own dedicated channel. I love that. There are people who are sort of uh, academic academics who, mm. who will do their own channels. They, they might be a professor or somebody with a PhD in something. And uh, I, I have those people on board. Going to books, I think, so it depends on where you want to go with philosophy. I would say probably start with the Socratic uh, lineage. And so that would be Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. Mm. They, they really cover a lot of territory. So you could go on to YouTube and just uh, search for say start with Socrates and find out what Socrates was about and he was really he was known for sort of the Socratic method of inquiry and I'll le I won't even talk about that just go you know go go explore uh, Socratic uh, inquiry and and his way of um, engaging an interlocutor in a conversation to extract from the uh, the other person that he was talking with um, either flaws in their argument or understanding themselves better or understanding the matter better and mm. then uh, Plato was uh, a little a little deeper, in my opinion, about uh, metaphysical things and ontological inquiry. And so Plato is very fascinating in that regard. So go go do a little bit of cursory uh, research on Plato and see if it resonates with you. If it's mm. rubbish, just leave it alone. Don't don't make yourself do something you don't want to do. I haven't honestly, I haven't really studied Aristotle that much. There's a lot there and I just haven't even breached that. I'm still mm. stuck on Plato and a little bit of Socrates. And then I go myself, I go people before that, they're called pre-Socratic philosophers. Uh, and some of the academies that existed prior to Socrates. And so ancient Greek philosophy, we'll just put that in a mm. set of brackets. Um, there's a wealth there just because they lived uh, as much as 2,500 years ago or 2,300 years ago in the case of Socrates and Plato. There's so much there. They they were no less intelligent than yeah. us. And actually, they probably had more time to they weren't running around like uh, maniacs like we do in the modern <laughs> world. They they had the, the ones who could afford to who weren't slaves were were busy uh, mulling over these ideas and arguing yeah. with each other. So there's a, a wealth there. We might as well benefit from that. And that speaks again to that extended mind uh, when we teach our children things or when we learn things that we have voices historically uh, bringing information for in a metaphoric sense, again, in, a, in, a, in an abstract way. But um, so if you if you want to touch into that, that's good. Uh, also, if you are curious about um, sort of more modern thinking, you can start in the middle of the 19th century, there was the German idealists, the German philosophers. So that's uh, people like Goethe mm. and Schelling and Fich uh, Fichte. Uh, I can't say the other way because it's a foul yeah. word in German. Uh, so Fichte and uh, Schopenhauer and um, probably forgetting a few. Oh, oh, Nietzsche's kind of in there. Nietzsche was a little later. Yeah. So those are really interesting people. And they they did the same thing. They just batted these ideas in European salons uh, in the mid to late, uh, sort of early to mid 19th century. And then further in, mm -hmm. uh, Nietzsche was in the latter part of the 19th. So they were just asking these big questions and, and uh, trying to understand culture and society and the mindedness of ourselves and all these things that we deal with and um so we speak about morality and ethics uh they were kind of batting around uh i so i'll, I'll speak to schopenhauer i know what he was thinking is uh an ethics of compassion versus an ethics of oughts and shalls and shants you know the, 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 that's more deontological like the ten commandments and thou shalt and thou shalt yeah. not right that's deontology 
a deontological uh, directive. And this is, he was more about a, a ethics of compassion, and which is ironic because he was a very surly man. He was a very miserable, misogynistic <laughs> man. But in his philosophizing, he he was really put together in that sense. And so if you can look past his being a bit of a, a curmudgeon-y old guy, what he touched on was um, that we need an ethics of compassion. And he was very much influenced by uh, Advaita Vedanta and, and the Eastern traditions. So um, so it, it filters out that way. Um, he was also into aesthetics. He said, listen, if, you, if you're having an existential crisis, go listen to the symphony, go to a museum yeah. and, and, and immerse yourself in art. So, so they were dialed in. And then if you really want to go into more modern, there's uh, sort of modernist to postmodernist philosophy, where there's a lot of critiques of, of um, not our culture right now, but maybe culture in the 1950s, mid-century, mid-20th century. Uh, and, 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 and it's all to be taken as a critique. A lot of people like to criticize postmodern thinking, and postmodern means a billion different things. But it's, if you can go in there and just ab, uh, abstract away the critiques that they were leveling against modernist society, which was a, a, a part of the Enlightenment project in the 18th century when we had the Industrial Revolution, yada, yada, yada. So those mm. guys were addressing a lot of this stuff. And, they, and that's where existentialism comes from. They were asking these very existential questions. Uh, you know, is there uh, so, oh gosh, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre was thinking of uh, existence precedes essence. So are, are we really truly a blank slate and what is our essence? And, and, and essence would be our psychology and our mindedness and, and how we relate with others and so forth. So they were just asking these really interesting kind of deep, yeah. to me, interesting, deep questions. So there's a whole rainbow of things out there. Um, and I wouldn't know, to, I, so I would say to anyone, just, you know, what's, what is the, pick one thing that makes you angsty in the world and, yeah. and, and then go like define it and then go listen to um, people who can address that. So, mm. you know, if you're, if you're, uh, so another word I, I love that I'll bring up, it's called solastalgia and it's another portmanteau and it is a sense of um, uh, pre-traumatic distress syndrome, if you will. It is, it is a sort of fearing, a fear of the environmental condition of the world as it is at present, as it is unfolding. And it's not environmental, even it is our current ecological uh, uh, crisis that we might end. So food scarcity, water scarcity, pollution, climate change, all these different things. So people are, are having anxiety about this. Mm. But it's also it's also uh, uh, what would be called sort of feeling unhoused, even though you're housed. So that's called domicide. So it's, it's and this is kind of a Debbie Downer uh, word, but but it's, I think it's relevant for the times we live in where we feel outside of ourselves. We feel outside of the homing process. So it's not just that you have brick and mortar around you, that you feel home, that, that the home is your uh, insular uh, security. It is, it is your place of refuge and your solace. And that's solastalgia. So solace is, your, is the comfort and, and algia is pain, like neuralgia or, or um, yeah, right. yeah, some of those other. So it's, it's, it's a contradictory tension there. And I love those kind of words that, yeah. that speak to this, this kind of tension. So, and again, I don't mean it to be a, a, a negative or a Debbie Downer kind of word, but it's more, it, it, it may get you thinking. It's like, am I, am I living in my home? Am I truly in home? Am I in my body? Am, am I in my sense of beingness, my selfness? So it, 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 it's iterative. It extracts itself out um, into the world. So anyway, that I, I threw that in as another word, uh, but yeah. So if you're feeling that, then look into how do you rehouse yourself? How do you re um, uh, embody yourself? And so maybe you think about uh, the philosophy of mind and what is our what is the psychological matrix of 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 you know the composite that is us? Because when we think about mindedness, it's so abstract you can never 
there you can't define where your mindedness is or or how mindedness works yeah so yeah so, so understanding what other what people are saying about that may give you some solace instead of the solace dasha. <laughs> so. I I love that word and I think that word could be applied in in so many ways in current society because so often I hear of of people that um you know are suffering from depression or anxiety or you know any other kind of mental kind of challenges and and they sort of say I shouldn't feel like this. You know, everything in my life is great. I have a house, I've got a family, I've got a job, but there's just something missing. And I think that comes to that, um, the, the tension that you speak of that, you know, maybe they're not um, fully feeling like they're living living their purpose or there's just something missing, that tension there. So I, I love that word. Um, mm. I also love where you talk about the ancient philosophies Um you're right. There's so many different, different paths you can go down. Another one I love, there's a book. Um, it's quite a short book. It's called How to Grow Old by Cicero. And it's, I think it was written in 42 BC. Don't quote me on that, but it's just such a great book filled of just very general bits of wisdom. And the thing that resonated with me for that book was that people were still dealing with the same issues that we're dealing with today back then. You know, there's so yeah. many similarities. And whilst we live very different lifestyles, the the core issues <laughs> are still the same. You know, the people that annoy you or, you know, tension with your family or, mm. you know, what is the meaning of life or the, your purpose in life? So there's a lot of crossover there. So I, I love that. You know, I think that it, the ancient philosophy just gives you that very basic grounding. And also you made a good point as well. Um, if it doesn't resonate for you, look at something else. You know, you don't feel, you don't need to feel forced to read all the, the different ones out there. So, yeah, pick something that resonates for you and go go down that path. That's brilliant. Yeah. And you never know where it'll take you. Then maybe another door will open. Yeah. You'll go, you'll go somewhere else. and. And honestly, if, if you're the right personality, you'll find philosophy once you breach a few thresholds that if if it resonates with you, you'll just fall in love with it. I mean, yeah. the love, the love, the fila, you know, the, yeah, it, it's not for everyone, but, you know, take what you need. It's, it's a resource. It's like dipping in a well. It just take what you need to help you. It salves the soul, the, yeah. the, the, the psyche, this, which is a synonymy for me. Uh, it salves you. It, it helps reassure you that. Like you said, historic, like domicide. There are epochs of domicide. Uh, when um, Alexander the Great was conquering and sacking all of the Hindu Kush region in northern India, mm. there was a great deal of domicide uh, along that path. People were unhoused, both emotionally, psychically, and and physically. So, so yeah, it happens historically, and it's iterative. It just, I think, it cycles through. Um, mm. I, I'd say one unhousing that we're we're experiencing now that I rarely I, I don't think I've heard anybody really address it is the future shock. It's mm. a term. It's from a book I think from 1973. I've never read it, um, but the term future shock I think is what we're all dealing with right now. I think we can on the level on the on, on the conscious. Uh, above board level say, oh, well, it's just an Apple iPhone or I'm just on the internet. I'm just dealing with this. But I think the overwhelm is not being accounted for. And we, again, this speaks to that sort of um, under the radar kind of how things are coming to us and how we are storehousing these things. And I just have this little pet theory that when we are dealing with so much information saturation and exposure, that we we don't know what it's doing to us. We're not. Oh, yeah. And, and I, that's a I don't good point. Yeah. Yeah. I don't impose any judgment on that because we are 
all of us who have technology available to us maybe getting some exposure to that but it's almost like a radiation kind of thing you know yeah. we don't know we don't feel it we don't know it but it may be making us sick down the road and again i put no i use social media all day long i you know i i'm I, anyway so it's not a judgment call it's just maybe pause for consideration that um that what we've engaged with everything everything is sort of oriented towards that uh, mm. for most of us in the modern world. So that's just a, a you know pause for consideration. I, I really love that. It's a very good point. And I have actually wondered that myself, and I don't know if there's any research around it, but for me personally, I find that I'm always doing something. Like I, I enjoy being busy and I'm very curious, so I like to learn. So, for example, if I'm, you know, even just doing housework, I'll have my headphones in and be listening to a podcast or an audio book or, um, you know, reading something or, um, you know, even when I'm running, like I'll be listening to things. And I do wonder at, at what point, you know, would you be better off just to unplug and, and be sitting in silence, you know, and I suppose that's where meditation comes in for me. I find that very beneficial mm. just to kind of defrag the mind and and get back to that quiet place. But we are just surrounded by constant noise and not physical noise, but, you know, from our devices and, you know, things that want our attention. So that's a, that's a really good point, actually. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see how that impacts us going forward. And it might be the source of, you know, the anxiety and other mental conditions that people are feeling is just that feeling of being bombarded by information mm. all the time. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, there's um, um, a along those lines, if you don't mind another tangent. Yeah, there, um, there's something on, in the in the uh, culture, in the Western modern culture that we can all access and immediately understand, I think, if you're a movie person, that was the Matrix films. Mm. And so the Matrix films were partly inspired by a philosopher named Baudrillard. And the Wyshynowski sisters had um, sort of co-opted part of his thinking into the theme of the Matrix. And Baudrillard wasn't necessarily impressed with their the outcome of what of their trying to do right by his work. So, but I think uh, if we think about the Matrix, he's, they're referencing a kind of being plugged into a system that you know you're you're living a um, a non-real life. Mm. And um, again, that's a nod to Baudrillard. So I'll I'll pull the matrix away for a moment because I don't want to contaminate what I'm going to say with thinking about the matrix. Baudrillard's idea was that when it comes to sort of this postmodernist, well, we're kind of in a metamodern world, but in the postmodernist world, uh, there was information and there was reality. There was tangible uh, brick and mortar, trees, woods, fleshy people engaging with each other face to face. Well, he was in, in the late 80s, 1980s and early 90s, he came up with this idea of something called the simulacra, the simulation and the hyper reality. So the simulacra was the sort of invention of, of what at the time it was a, a critique of uh, reality television, that when you sit down in front of the television, you're watching something that's being uh, they're uh, pretending to be real or they're they're simulating a real scenario. And a lot of that reality TV was very scripted and, you know, very fictional. Um, and and what he was critiquing there is that you will be onboarding that information as though it were real. Mm -hmm. And then um, so so that's more of a simulation. So you're aware that you're watching a simulation of something. And we could reference maybe things like virtual reality or other or um, TikTok or YouTube, uh, uh, Twitter He's, he's pointing in the direction that you're sitting at home in front of a device that's presenting this information to you. Well, then he says the next step is that 
you become so engaged and immersed with that reality that it or that non-reality that it becomes a kind of reality for you so that you become more connected. A lot of your relationality and your interactions are done virtually or they are done in that environment that is not necessarily real. It is engaging with quasi-fictional uh, uh, events and phenomena. And it gets to the point where you become so immersed in it that it's the line starts to blur about what is the um, material reality that you that your physicality occupies and and where your consciousness is going where your mindedness is going into a kind of virtual uh or simulacra reality and he says the hyper reality occurs that when you more or less move into that um non-reality that is being presented as a reality and then you start to blur the lines you can't tell the difference and you're just basically subsumed into that uh, uh, information ecosystem or that culture that's that again is virtual it's not mm. necessarily real or that the narrative is not necessarily real and this and not to get on a soapbox and cultural divisiveness but this is where a lot of conspiracy theories come up you yeah sort of move into a, a hyper real situation so it was a caveat that he issued uh that i think is very relevant today more so than 30 years ago when reality tv was kind of a nuisance on television and it's become the TikTok reality where people in their teens and 20s uh, basically live on TikTok or the gamers that spend all day on games and they mm. just they're immersed in that world and the real world starts to fade away and they get they get sort of distracted to the umpteenth degree so yeah. so I think his his words his cautionary tale uh, and again the Wishtonowski sisters tried to um to bake that into the to the matrix along with a few other ideas I, um and and I just think it really speaks to where we can find ourselves some of us uh, mm. who who may not as you said find meditation a walk in the woods regrounding your grounding yourself back in the boring old fleshy uh material world and you're mm. not so much constantly on TikTok constantly in a gaming environment or virtual reality or whatever it is that you're doing uh that you uh touch base with uh, a physical person and talk to them and and have a good conversation in a library or a cafe over a cup of coffee go out in the woods those kind of things so yeah so it's the the, the cure is very um accessible it's the will that has to be harnessed to not to do it constantly right constantly be on tiktok constantly be playing the games and so forth so anyway i i, I added that in because as you said grounding yourself in meditation is uh is essential I think anymore. Yeah. it's always been good and always been something as a means of uh self-development but yeah it's 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 I think it's very important now yeah that's right more important than ever and you're right it doesn't have to be meditation it can just be those simple grounding activities and yeah connecting with nature connecting with other people that's brilliant mm -hmm. I love that um I'm curious, you've interviewed a number of people throughout your career. Um, are there any common threads of wisdom or philosophy that your interviewees commonly share with you? I would say the prevailing theme is sense-making. Mm. And so any of the folks that I've had on for an interview uh, show up in good faith to, if they're common folks like myself, and maybe they developed a coaching business based on a particular niche of of a phenomenological niche like they were abused as a child mm -hmm. and they they maybe turned to drugs to help self-medicate and they came back out of that whole thing full circle or or, or yeah full circle because when you're an infant you're innocent you're you know, everything is good uh so they come back to that kind of stage where everything is better and they're not dealing with that they still have it in their background but um 
those folks, I absolutely love their stories because they're there to help others. They turn mm -hmm. that story into a means, a vehicle to help others affect change for themselves. If they are in the throes of that crisis of having been abused or using drugs or whatever to self-medicate to to um, keep themselves from from facing the trauma of the past. And then I go all the way up to academics and people who are, are, are very well educated, uh, you know, PhDs and in, in whatever. Uh, I want to learn from them because they um, they have their own uh, their own experience of life, but then they also have all the the, the wisdom that comes mm. from whatever discipline that they focused on. And I want to talk to them if they've written a book. I want to share what they did with the book. So it's it's a multi front or uh, multi aspectual approach to how do we sense make. I heard a psychologist the other day on YouTube say something so profound to me, and she said that pathology. Uh, one of the origins or roots of pathology is the inability to, to sense make. Wow. You know, yeah. And it, it yeah. hit me like a ton of bricks because it's true. If, if, if we don't have good, healthy, good faith, uh, grounded sense making, then the pathologies will spin up and we yeah. go into those hyper realities, those non-real environments. Um, and that's again, where, where people end up with, um, uh, uh, disorders, if you want to call it that, uh, of, of the psyche of, of mindedness. And so, and, and disorder may be a strong word, but whatever you want yeah. to call it, pathology. Yeah. yeah. Of, of, of mindedness. So, so that hit me. It was really profound. I was like, yeah, wow, so I'm gonna it's so simple, but it makes so much sense, doesn't it? Yeah. Right. right. And it, and it's, it's just one element of yeah. what is, you know, is derivative, the pathologies are derivative of, but I just thought, wow, that's, that's yeah. really keen. That's powerful. So, yeah. So that was that. And it's not that I want to give myself any credit for being the guy that champions sense making, but my folks that show up for yeah. these conversations do that for me. Right. Yeah. And I'm just the I'm the guy that pressed play, you know, and yeah. I try to ask decent questions that platform them and present them in a in a, a good way. That's what my responsibility is to try to be a good host. So yeah, no, you're a great host, and I I love your conversations yeah. that you have with yeah. your guests. They're, they're they're varied and fascinating. So um, I'll put links to that as well in the show notes. But highly recommend people check that out. It's amazing. Thank you. Um, our listeners love books, and I'd love to know what is one book you'd recommend. Um, it doesn't have to be related to our conversation. Um, it can be a a long time favorite, something you've read recently. Um, I'd love to. Love to hear your thoughts on that. <laughs> I'm looking at my bookshelf now. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, I would say a lot of my books are, I, for some reason, I could never read fiction. So everything mm. I read is very tedious and very, it's technical, but not that I can, you know, break through some of the technical talk. Um, there's one philosopher that I follow. His name is Bernardo Castro. Uh, I've had him on several, uh, three times now, I think. And he's written a number of books. And so if you just Google Bernardo Castro, um, he addresses, uh, so there's something out there called the meta crisis, the meaning crisis, all these different you know fancy ways of saying that we're kind of struggling out there. We're maybe dealing with nihilism or we're dealing with um, absence of meaning in our lives. And so Bernardo has revived something called idealism and it's not uh, ethical idealism where we idealize things like, Oh, chocolate is wonderful. And wouldn't it be great to have a world made of chocolate? That's ethical ideal. Or that's my ethical idealism. Like, a world made of chocolate would be wonderful. No, he's he idealism is to say that everything is a minded affair. Everything is consciousness in a sense, everything. It, so the ontological primitive is, is mindedness. And I've actually interviewed some developmental biologists that are working with single celled, um, 
organisms that are demonstrating this kind of thing. And so, yeah, take it, you, you know, I, I'm always agnostic about everything, so I never land on anything. And so take that with a grain of salt, explore it for yourself, draw your own conclusions. But Bernardo works with that. But he also brings humanity in. He brings in compassion. He He's a young in. So he he follows a lot in the shadow, in the in the footsteps of Young, almost mm. in the shadow of Young, which is kind of a, sh- a Jungian slip there. Uh, but yeah, he he incorporates a, a few different um, ways of approaching sense making, meaning making, uh, purpose, uh, uh, relevance, and things like that. And and I like his work because it's 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 technical, but it's it's accessible. Mm. You know, if you have a high school education, you're literate you can do it. It's good. He doesn't yeah. write in, in that abstruse a language that you can't uh, grasp him. So uh, there's a book, uh, More Than Allegory is a way of of tethering um, the what was intended to be allegorical uh, didacts in, in religious, uh, in early uh, uh, Abrahamic systems uh, like Judaism and Christianity. And in, in, in modern times, we tend to take that again as propositional truth rather than a perspectival truth or uh, uh, another other type of, of knowledge or knowing uh, what they did in those in the Iron Age and the Axial Age uh, was they spoke in allegory. They spoke in metaphor um, to help convey a very deep idea in a way that we can handle that you know, people who are illiterate or not necessarily educated can handle. And it was a way a system of teaching. And, and again, mm. we kind of misconstrue that now. So he, he, he speaks to that. And I think if you're in a spiritual vacuum or void or, or crisis or however you want to call that, um, he, that's a good book to talk, uh, talk with. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, to yeah. Communicate with. yeah. Yeah. Right. I, that was another slip. And so, <laughs> yeah, get in, engage with. Engage. Uh, yeah. Book. Yeah. Yeah. So, so start with, uh, with Bernardo. He's a good guy. Um, I've got some other folks, but again, the work is so obnoxious. It's, it's hard to penetrate. Uh, there's a guy named Whitehead that I, uh, he was where I started and it was like hitting a wall at 50 miles an hour. He, he was a, yeah, he was a mathematician and he dabbled in spirituality too. And he, he engaged, uh, although he was not, um, a theist per se, he, so his, his, when he invokes the term God, it is more a process. It is, it is more a phenomena than it is a a deity. And then it is a, 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 you know, an old bearded person in the sky it's it's more that this is a process and but there should be divinity and sacredness and reverence in uh the relation of a minded human and its environment and what may be out again uh to invoke plato he had forms these were things that exist abstractly but okay. they concretize when you and i invoke them so we talk of the form of the tree and we see the tree and so it's 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 a tool it's a heuristic it's not meant to be taken literally again in allegory and so uh, Whitehead was deeply, deeply difficult to understand. So I started listening to other people who could uh, decode that and translate it yeah. for me. And I, and I actually interviewed a Whiteheadian. And, and I, after several years, I finally get Whitehead's point, points that he was making. And it's very poetic. It's very mathematician-y. Uh, and and it, I use it as a symbolic tool. I don't take any of it literally. I just take it as a sense-making tool for me to help me with my pathologies you know, and my neuroses and all my things that I deal with, you know, so, so, yeah. That's, a, that's an excellent point because... Um... I suppose if you come across a theory that interests you, like Whitehead's theory, mm-hmm. but if you're finding the the language or the material difficult to understand, it's interesting to research other other people that can perhaps present it in a different way. Because if it's yeah. it's something that other people are following, rather than just giving up on the concept, mm-hmm. stick with it and and try and approach it in a different way or 
hear someone else explain it and it might resonate in a different way for you. That's a that's a good point um, that there's theories yeah. that, you know, essentially saying the same thing, but often it's the way that the information is presented that makes it more palatable. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Absolutely. Yeah. He even developed his own language, which is where a lot of us hit the wall with him. He has words like superject and, yeah. um, you know, things like that. And uh, so concrescence, you know, so you have to understand where he's coming from with these words. And that's where people can decode them for you. Yeah. To, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, they're good. Just an example. Of so, yeah, it's worth persisting to try and find other people explain it in different ways. Yeah. And give a right. different perspective, too. So. Right. Right. Um, we're coming to the end of our interview now, and I've just thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. It's it's fascinating. So thank you so much for sharing sharing your insights with us. Um, I was wondering if people are curious, where where else can they find you online or connect with you further if they'd like more information about what you do? Well, Courtney, I uh, I thank you for that question uh, and helping folks to discover uh, the projects that I'm undertaking. And I, I also just want to thank you and acknowledge uh this uh participatory conversation that we had uh so to to speak to your question i have that channel on youtube and so now i'll say it it's called idea cast yeah. interview series and you'll have the links for that i also run a website called illumin life and it's free all i ask is that you register because i have different levels of they're not courses i guess there may be courses and it all speaks to my own uh creole of philosophy that i've uh, put together. And it's something that I use that might help people with helping sense make and meaning make and understand purpose or relevance and things like that. And it's, and so the beauty about it is anything that I do is not prescriptive. It is more inquiry. It's ceaseless inquiry. I, I jokingly call myself a Peronian skeptic. And that is <laughs> to, uh, epoche leads to ataraxia. Suspension of judgment leads to a sense of well-being. And I want to help people understand that. Because we we put so much on judgment and value that it kills us sometimes. And so my work is antithetical to most self-improvement work in a way. And if you get it, like anything else, that it, it might help. And so uh, it's, again, not meant to be a program in its own right. It's just meant as a, as a tool uh, in your toolbox of things that you can do. And again, it's all free. And people can, con my uh, email address is there if you want to uh, to reach out to me that way. It's on that website. Yeah, it's a great website and I, I highly recommend the Ideas Cast interviews as well with Justin. Um, his guests are fascinating and the interviews are, are, are very in-depth and, and cover a range of topics, so I highly recommend that too. So I'll put links to everything in the show notes. Thank you so much for your time, Justin. I really appreciate you meeting with me and, and our conversation and hopefully we can connect again in the future. That would be wonderful. In fact, I should have you over as a guest. At <laughs> any time. Yeah, that would be fun. And we can have a different conversation yeah. or the same and yeah. just different approaches. But Courtney, thank you so much for, for giving us this space to have this conversation. And I hope, hopefully it touches people. Hopefully uh, they get curious. Uh, it, it doesn't have to be about me. It can be about any of the things that were brought up. So yeah. thank you for opening that space and, and granting me your space uh, to, be, to be with you tonight. Thanks again. Thank you so much. I am blown away by this fascinating conversation with Justin today and can't wait to catch up again soon. If you'd like to learn more about Justin and Illumin Life, I have included all the links in the show notes and I highly recommend you check out Justin's IdeaCast interview series. There are so many interesting and inspiring interviews for you to enjoy here. If you've enjoyed this episode, I'd be so grateful if you could leave a rating and review. 
each review helps others find this podcast, and it absolutely makes my day reading them. I'd be delighted to assist you further on your journey of personal development and growth. If you're looking for more inspiration, check out my book, A Year of Love, Finding Peace One Day at a Time. Or if you're looking for a little more morning motivation, take a look at my free course, Magical Mornings. If you'd like to learn more about journaling, my course, Joyful Journaling Journey, could be just what you need. In the meantime, if you want some inspiring journaling prompts to kickstart your journaling practice, you can grab my free journaling guide with 100 prompts. This guide also includes some super helpful info on the benefits of journaling, along with tips on how to establish a consistent journaling practice. Links for all of these helpful tools and resources can be found in the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you can join me next time.